Good evening, ladies and squirrels. I hope we're all okay. We are back with episode 31 of Polymath's podcast, and it is an interview format again today. We are interviewing a very, very good and talented friend of mine again. This time it is Daniel Bevis, who is a uh, works in an advertising company day to day. He is a senior knowledge editor, but he also writes for probably more of the UK car magazines than you can shake a stick at. So he's very, very busy and does an awful lot of writing. Um, and in this episode, we go into great detail on uh, on some of his writing um, regimes and techniques, as well as some of his influences and uh, what whiskey he likes to drink. So. I've known Dan for a great many years now. We are, um, we go back to um, the start of my photography career, pretty much, um, and I've worked with him an awful lot over the last few years. And uh, I hope you enjoy this short interview. Well, I say short. Uh, we we did go on for a little over an hour, so I hope you enjoy this little conversation that we had. And if you would like to catch up with him, he is at Denial Vibes on Twitter and at dbizzle with an underscore after it on Instagram. And you can also find his two blogs. Uh, one is uh, Juicy Pips, if you just search for Juicy Pips, or you can check the show notes for the link. And the other is Suck, Squeeze, Bang, Blow, which is his automotive blog. So yes, if you want to have a look at those, uh, the sh- links in the show notes are down below. And you can also find some information of the books that we talk about as well. I will pick up a couple of these books as I'm incredibly interested to read some of them. Um, it's definitely something that I need to be doing more of. Um, so, yes, without further ado, I will get into the interview and you can have a listen to it for yourself. Thanks very much, guys. Now we'll see you next episode. So we have uh, Dan Bevis. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hey, you're welcome. No worries. How are you doing? All good? Yeah, good, good. Sun's out. Can't complain. Excellent. And you got a day off today? Yeah. Always. Day off from both jobs. <laughs> day off from both jobs. I don't know whether you've ever had a day off from both jobs. Not uh, not for a while, anyway. Um, oh, wow. yeah. So, yeah, um, we have an awful lot in common in terms of certain aspects but i wanted to kind of dive straight into one that we're both very uh, keen on and that's red dwarf <laughs> right <laughs> so, where where what was the first episode of red dwarf you saw oh um <laughs> that's a good question you know i remember very clearly uh when i was at primary school uh series five was on tv <laughs> it's um i wasn't allowed to watch the first one because it was naughty it was the one with um with the hollow ship yeah and I was probably, what, 10 years old then. So, yeah, the one after that, I guess, would have been the first one. So you're a little bit younger than me. I remember we used to pass the uh, the VHS tapes around school, and that was when I was uh, at secondary school. So, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> Any favourite episodes? Um, all of them in the first six series. And we didn't like seven and eight? They were okay. They were all right. Um, I think it suffered... From uh, not having the two of them writing them together. Yeah, that's true. Seven and eight were a bit weak. Um, Back to Earth is probably the worst thing that's ever happened, and not just on TV. (laughs) Um, But then ten was quite good. I I really liked ten. I really liked ten. I quite liked nine as well. Nine was uh, nine was getting back to it, but ten was really funny. 
they've got older though, haven't they? Hologram yeah. shouldn't age. Very much so. That's true. Very much so. Um, so <laughs> yeah, it's uh, Red Dwarf uh, is a constant bantering um, weapon that I kind of use uh, with you anyway. So. Uh, it seemed like a sensible place to start off. Um, we've known each other, known each other for a fair, fair few years now, and uh, we kind of started um, with one of your websites, or we were linked through to one of, from one of your websites, which was Suck, Squeeze, Bang, Blow. Yeah. Um, when, where, when and how did you start doing that? Um, so that was, uh, it's just coming up to its 10th anniversary, actually. Oh, wow. Um, September, I think. And um, it started off, from, well, I used to write this newsletter at work, um, which was like an all-staff email that went out on a Friday. Yeah. That was, um, you know, just like a funny story, funny links kind of thing. And I started writing a car element in that and then realized that nobody at work cared. So I thought, <laughs> put it on the internet where let, less people will care, but more people might see. Okay. I don't know. But um, it just it kind of became a sounding board of um, interesting cars I'd seen online and what have you. And over the years, it's evolved more into a sort of scrapbook of cars I've seen at shows. Um, so I bought myself a decent camera and started trying to take reasonable pictures. And uh, every time I put a car on there, I try and give a bit of the history of it, do a bit of research to find out where it came from and what the whole story is and what have you. And it was kind of off the back of that, that all the journalism stuff started. Okay. Um, I don't think it necessarily, I don't think you need to have a lot of people reading your blog. I'm, I'm not a fan of blogs in general, to be honest, so it's quite strange to have two or three of my own. But um, I think the fact that you do one proves that you care. Yes. And that's a useful thing. Okay. And um, when people ask you what you do, what do you say? It depends who asks. Uh, so <laughs> Joe, Blo okay. So uh, I'm guessing if it was Joe Bloggs at a car show, then you'd be a an auto journalist. Yeah. Uh, but somebody on the subway, subway underground. Yeah. Might get uh, a different uh, answer. Yeah. Um, I would say I have two jobs. I have the day job in advertising, and then I have the sideline, which is actually a full time job. And then the family's a full time job on top of that. <laughs> so you have three full time jobs. Pretty busy, yeah. Fantastic. But, um, sleep is overrated, I think. <laughs> and uh, Suck, Squeeze, Bang, Blow is so that's ten years old now, uh, or coming yeah, coming up to it. And I'll be honest, it's it's taken a bit of a backseat um, over the last year or so, um, as the volume of, uh, of journalism stuff has increased. Yeah. Um, I used to try and put a new thing on the blog every day, and now I try and get something on there every week, so it's throttled back a bit. But it's still there; it's still a thing. And that was um, that was obviously where we met. Well, not obviously, but uh, for those listening, that was where uh, where we kind of came into contact because you uh, put out a uh, little Facebook message asking for photographers to um, donate, well, not donate, but provide uh, photos for Suck, Squeeze, Bang, Blow because you had a yeah, had a big I. plan for it. Um, I did have a plan. What the was plan what was that plan? That was planner. how long was was that? Five years ago. Uh, yeah, it could be, yeah, five or six years. So yeah. what, was that, what was that initial plan that you had? Because obviously you've been writing it for probably five years, four or five years by then. Uh, yeah. And then did you want to take it in a different different route, different angle? Yeah, I just wanted to see what I could do with it, really. Um, I mean, blogging is a very difficult thing because there's a lot of sites out there that are heavily monetized, like Speed Hunters and what have you. 
um, places that don't have to turn a profit so they can throw a lot of money into quality content and then just give it out for free. Um, so running any kind of car blog is, you're on a hiding for nothing really. But I just wanted to see what would happen. Uh, and as it turned out, nothing happened. <laughs> <laughs> it, um, it stayed exactly the same as it was. But that was largely just because it has always been a hobby rather than, you know, it's never going to be uh, an earner or a, or a, a job. It was just, it's just um, a place to throw up ideas, basically. Okay. And um, having played around with the format and got different contributors um, and experimented with that, I realised that actually it was kind of pointless. <laughs> so I went back to what I was doing before. Which um, was? Which was just me putting up pictures of things I've seen and saying waffling stuff about them and then sharing it all on various social channels. And it does get a reasonable amount of hits. Um, I think it's had, I don't know, well, it's had over a million paid views, but then it has been going for 10 years, so yeah. it's not like, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it gets probably about a 1,000 views a day, something like that, I think. That's Last time bad. I checked. It's been a long time since I checked. <laughs> yeah, it's not a bad game. That's all right. It's, not, it's, it's, uh, it's all, it's all um, comparable anyway. But um, mm. So do you or have you considered using that as a practice for uh, different formats and, and writing styles or anything? Not really. It's um, it's more a kind of sketch pad, really. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's not a lot. Because it's on the blogger format, it's not very versatile. There's not a lot you can do with it. Um, and if I was serious about turning it into some big media colossus, then I'd use a better platform and start thinking about, I don't know, making video or... I mean, people have suggested in the past that I could use the fact that I have a blog to get press cars and to do features for it, but people, like, manufacturers and so on, wouldn't be interested in that kind of thing because it doesn't yeah. have to reach. Um, so, no, it's, it is literally just a, a pad to put ideas and things I've seen and stuff. I mean, it's more for my own reference um, than anything. Quite a lot of the time, someone will, a car will come up in conversation with somebody or uh, on a forum post or whatever, someone will say, have you seen such and such a car? And then I'll think, oh, yeah, I did a post about that a couple of years ago, and I'll go and find <laughs> it, and then I've got all the information to hand. Gotcha. And, and every couple of years, I will um, download the whole thing and print it into a book. So I've got some nice little books on my shelf of stuff I've written. Fantastic. And that's the same with Juicy Pips as well, isn't it? Yeah. that. Yeah, I didn't expect anyone to actually buy that, because why would you? But yeah, it was nice <laughs> to put it out to books so that I just had it for posterity. So do you want to tell them what, what's what's the idea behind Juicy Pips? I'm guessing it's that's, that's pretty much like a... Uh, a brain aneurysm on on paper sort of thing yeah pretty much well yeah that um in fact is the uh, the work email thing i was talking about um before oh okay um, so that's the original yeah because um because the uh the agency i work at their whole uh, symbol is an apple uh, it's a long story but uh, basically <laughs> everything in the agency has some sort of apple theme or an apple pun or whatever so somebody who used to work there came up with this idea of juicy pips and they used to send out this Friday email that was uh, a few funny links and funny videos and lookalikes of people in the office and what have you. Um, and they did it for a couple of months and then they left uh, the agency and I took it over and then I kind of turned it into my own thing and it became less about all the links and stuff and more about this whole tedious, lengthy narrative that I come up with. <laughs> <laughs> more for my own amusement than anything else. Uh, but people do genuinely read it in the office. I've got a little microcosm of maybe 100, 150 or people who do actually read it, which is nice. Oh, really? um, and then it just kind of made sense to put it on a blog because then I could share it with you know, people who left the agency and still wanted to see it and what yeah. have you. So that's where that all came from. Um, 
but it was useful that I, it kind of, it gave me a lot of writing practice because um, I've always been a great reader, but it's only relatively recently that I've become a writer. Um, I studied English at, sort of English literature at uni, and I can't now read the things that I wrote then because they're so terrible. <laughs> um, just cringingly bad, bad, bad copy. Um, but this, uh, doing this weekly thing, it gave me a lot of practice. Because um, you kind of, you find your own style after you just, if you write a few thousand words every week, it all starts to flow. And um, and then I did a bit of research into um, classic texts on narrative style and you kind of, you get your uh, drunk and white or whatever it's called and then cross-reference that with books you've been reading recently, whether it's, you know, a bit of... Woodhouse from the 20s or some late 20th century dystopian literature or whatever it is you're reading at the time. You can kind of cross-reference one thing with the other and see how that has kind of subconsciously been informing your style. I know this sounds really wanky, but... <laughs> no, this is, this is really cool. I want to kind of delve deeper into that. That sounds really cool. <laughs> well, it's, um, it takes a little, or it took me a little while to be able to put a couple of thousand words down and actually read it through without having to make any significant changes like you always have to go back and edit things of course you do yeah. but um it took a while to be able to be to work out how to structure something in your head before you actually write it down so you've already plotted out where your beginning and your middle and your end are and how you get through those points whilst incorporating all the ideas that you had to put into it and, you know it's yeah it's a, it's a process and it's it's taken a while to pin it down but i'm pretty happy with it now so was that was that a um, did you have like the underpinnings of that from university or was that developed afterwards? Afterwards, really, yeah. Um, it was quite a weird course I did at university, actually, because it, uh, it was English literature in name, but it was modular, as so many courses are. So I did all the fun ones. So I did the cinema module and the modern art module and what have you. So I learned a lot about um, you know, <laughs> 1930s German expressionist cinema. <laughs> <laughs> um, Hollywood in the 1970s and all that kind of thing, which isn't technically English literature, is it? Um, but I did get to read a lot of interesting books as well. But um, the problem with literature analysis is that you can really overthink things. Yeah. And um, that seems to be a running trend in, in all the English classes that I remember. Yeah, yeah. And and it's, it's, it's easy enough to be given an assignment and they'll say, write down... 5,000 words on this particular tension between these two plays or whatever it is and you can bash it all out and then you read back over it and you think there's absolutely no way that the person writing this had any of these ideas <laughs> <laughs> it was yeah. just letting it all kind of come out on the paper exactly yeah it's yeah so while there is always digging to be done and there will always be hidden depths you can you can overthink things too much it's important to remember that a lot of stuff just happens in the moment. Yeah. So you, you mentioned about the writing influences that you, um, that you were having. Um, what and your style and how that kind of informed your style. How, what influences would you say have informed your style the most? Um, I would say it's three quite disparate um, sources. I would say uh, Douglas Copeland. Okay. Is um, late 20th, early 21st century Canadian novelist who writes a lot of very interesting stuff. Probably my favourite author, I'd say. Um, what, is, what sources does he write? 
Uh, he writes, um, well, his first book was Generation X, okay. which you've probably heard of. Yep. Um, basically, he, I think he used to work in marketing or advertising or something, and he was sent off, he was commissioned to write um, a report on Generation X, and it ended up turning into a novel. <laughs> and, um, and so the style of that is, uh, he's very good at analysing human behaviour and how it uh, interacts with consumer culture. Um, so... You know, the labels on things people buy, what they watch on TV, and how yeah. that influences the things they say and their behaviour and what have you. So, Why yeah, I'm always um, buying Starbucks rather than Costa. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's very um, analytical of human behaviour, which is something I find fascinating. So that's one element of it. Um, P.G. Woodhouse, just for the slapstick hilarity of it, just um, like I, it, it, it's hard to explain. Um, <laughs> I would never pretend to be a writer in that league, but yeah. I like to think that some of his wordplay informs the gentle, playful nature of things that I try to write. <laughs> awesome. Any particular books? When you're writing about cars, which I primarily do, people don't talk in that way about cars. Um, and quite often in magazines you find that, um, that articles are a fleshed out spec list and they're talking about how awesome this little bit of metal is and how it's much better than this other little bit of metal and i try and make it a bit more human tell a bit of a story yeah yeah so one of your favorite lines in in the articles uh, was uh, the cover cover story on the audi uh, quattro that you wrote uh, and you were talking oh, yeah. about a, um, a grizzly bear in a dinner suit um, <laughs> so, that, that one always kind of sticks with me but uh, yeah I, I understand what you're talking about there any particular books by pg Woodhouse that you would uh, uh, well, I'm a massive um, Jeeves and Worcester fan. Yeah. Uh, the earlier stuff in particular, because he wrote them for a really long time. It was from around, uh, from memory, it's probably around 1920 to about 1975 or something like that. Yeah. Um, the earlier ones are much more innocent, because you can see in the later ones he's trying to ignore um, modern culture and uh, keep it all rooted in that kind of club and lifestyle of the 1920s, 1930s. But the earlier ones, yes, very... Uh, whimsically written yeah um there's also a great character in um uh one of the non-jeeves and worcester books a character called uh smith smith spelled with a p silent p at the start and um he is just a shyster and he's this typical lovable rogue who you can imagine that bertie worcester might have become had he had more criminal leanings um <laughs> but uh, yeah it's all very enjoyable stuff it's um it's very light-hearted so you can just bash through a whole book in one go, and then you think, yeah, kind of fancy another one. It's like eating biscuits. Cool. Well, I've, I've kind of made a, um, a bit of a, not really a New Year's resolution, but just being conscious to read a little bit more. And uh, I've, I started a podcast where I was reading a chapter uh, from a book that I'm reading uh, at the moment. So I will uh, definitely pick up a P.G. Woodhouse. And... So if you were to recommend a book to start at uh, from from... PG or, or even Douglas Copeland um, and then you mentioned the third one as well so if you want to talk about oh, the, third well, one. the third one um, I noticed actually recently you were reading um, Bill Bryson's Brief History of Everything yes. or whatever it's called yeah. Short History of Everything um, yeah. that series of books by him um, I think has quite heavily informed the oh, way really? I write recently uh, <laughs> in the last few years because uh, that was the first 
I don't know how you describe it. It's kind of narrative history. Yeah, narrative documentary. Based, sort of, but yeah. he, he puts a nice thread through it so that you can read it as a story. Yeah. So you learn a lot without feel, feeling like you're being kind of lectured at. <laughs> That's very much how it felt when you were reading it. <laughs> that one's more heavy going than the later ones he did. He did one uh, called At Home, okay. which is a history of um, houses and all the things in houses. You know, why do we have doorknobs? Uh, why does a salt pot have one hole and a pepper shaker has several? And all these kind of weird facts about your house that you never think to ask. And then there's one he did recently, um, which I think was called One Summer, which is about uh, 1927. Lots of interesting things happened all in this one year. So there was the first um, transatlantic solo flight by Charles Lindbergh, and um, Babe Ruth was coming up in the. Uh, who did you play for? Uh, Yankees. Yankees. <laughs> um, and lots of other interesting things happening. So it was all just the story of this one year, but it's in that kind of Bill Bryson style. Oh, so um, there are elements of that where um, you can take some mundane objects from day to day life and turn a bit of a. Uh, turn it into a bit of a narrative. And I do that with some of my um, features. Like there's one in Performance VW this month about a yellow car. And in the whole intro, I'm talking about bananas. Yes. It's yellow. And there's no reason why you need to talk about bananas. But I just think, well, it's it a lead in somehow. of golfs. And this is a golf. And let's give it a hook. Because otherwise, you're just going, oh, look, there's another golf. Yeah. Um, this stuff doesn't always work out. I did one for... Performance BMW a couple of years ago, where I was talking about locusts, and most of the feature was about locusts. <laughs> whilst mentioning the car tangentially every now and then, and um, the editor said to me afterwards, "Let's try not to do that again." <laughs> didn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Cool. Find the balance. Raining in a bit. <laughs> but that's um, like I've I I'm certainly don't class myself as a writer in the, in the slightest. Um, but um, one of the reasons why I um, kind of verged into photography, I started a blog uh, very very many years ago um, because I missed writing. I used to be a graphic designer, so I missed writing for some of the magazines that I used to were designed for. Um, so I started a blog and uh, kind of typing out on that and. I always, I always try to take a, a tangent at the beginning, and I don't know, there'll be a, a, a specific name for it, I'm sure. Um, but take a tangent at the beginning, and then point back to the story, and then finish, finish, and kind of round it off at the end. Um, but all your writing seems to do that same kind of form. And every, uh, when I've been asked to write uh, recently as well, um, I've tried to. Not exactly copy, but try to use that that same form that you do in, in all your writing as well. So yeah, it's uh, I like I like how I like how all your articles read out. So. Well, yeah, I mean, there's there's a formula to it which you don't always stick to, but if you can, it kind of makes sense. Um, where I mean, everyone has their own different methods of writing, but if it's um, a feature for a car magazine and it's about fifteen hundred odd words, then it'll always be start off with an intro about whatever the random subject is that pops into your head that day. Then you talk about um, <laughs> where this person's interest in cars came from, uh, why they chose this particular car, where they found it, what it was like when they got it, all the stuff they did to it, how they use it now, people's reactions to it, and then you do an outro that links back to the intro, yeah. and you're done. Cool. So it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a formula, really. If you've got the information to fit into all of those little pockets of stuff, then you can just thread it together and it's done. Yeah. Obviously, it doesn't always work because um, all the stories are different. So sometimes you have to go straight into, you know, 
if it's a car that has been featured before, then you have to start and say, oh, you may remember seeing this before, but now it looks like this, or what have you. <laughs> <laughs> this has been featured and it was blue and now it's red. So your 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 writing process how how does that start? I know you um, I know you send emails out to uh, to to gather information from the owners, I, but I do, and um, and that has been criticised by uh, certain other people in the industry as not being a proper method. But I find it works best to have things written down from both sides of the process because for me, obviously, it's very useful to have everything in a document so I can pick out all the information without having any mistakes in the details and what have you. But for the um, for the car's owner or builder or whatever it may be, um, I find it's more useful for them to actually just sit down for five minutes, ten minutes, half an hour, however long they want to take, and write it down. Because you miss so much in a phone call. Yeah. Like I'm not averse to phoning people up and interviewing them over the phone if that's what they prefer. I'm happy to do that. But quite often you find that they'll call you back ten minutes later and say, yeah. oh, oh, I've said about this and this and this. And then when it's already gone off to print, they'll then call you back and say, oh, I forgot to say that I've done this and this and this. And you're like, well, it's too late now. Um, so, yeah, I've, it works for me to have all of that information. The, um, the problem with it is obviously you have to chase people because people are busy and it does take time to sit down and, and write stuff about your car, particularly if you've owned it for a long time. And I, I get that, that people may not be interested in that. Um, and sometimes you get people who, who just decide they don't want to do it at all. And you say, um, uh, I've been commissioned to write this feature, your car was shot last week. And uh, I had one guy who recently, uh, he replied and just said, I'm not interested. It's like, well, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't really work that way because oh, it's wow. been shot already. They've paid for that. Um, can, can I have some info? Anything? <laughs> like, oh, no. um, so then I had to go back to the editor and the editor went back to him and it all, it all worked out in the end. But um, Wow. Yeah. So not we, we, as excited as, uh, as having their cars featured as uh, as everyone else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the things I, I, I remember kind of having a conversation with you a few years ago about how excited owners are when I go down to photograph the, the cars and I didn't want to kind of lose that um, nostalgia sort of thing of, of, of the shoots. Um, mm. But uh, we've worked together a, a fair bit um, and I always... Um, What's the word? I always try to gain as much information and, and feeling from, from the owners as I can so I can pass it on to you and any kind of little foibles or, or um, stories that they've got about the car. So I can kind of see where you're, where you're coming from with, with gaining all the, uh, gathering all the information in one place um, and just kind of let yeah. them sit down. I'm well aware that it is much better to actually be on the shoot and I do love going on shoots. Um, it's for me, it's just a practicality issue having the other full-time job. I can't always yeah. just go off and and be there when a car's being shot. And if I can, then I do, and I love doing it. But um, I've in that situation, the photographer is essential. The writer, not so much. I mean, it's nice to be able to get the atmosphere, get it from the horse's mouth, and uh, particularly to see how excited they are. <laughs> <laughs> um, nothing quite gets nothing quite kind of passes that over like you you've i'm sure you've got uh, many messages from me saying oh the guy loved it he was really really cool thoroughly down-to-earth guy really really nice and um yeah it's 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 exhilarating almost to be on the shoot so uh, mm. but um yeah I mean, it's been interesting I, the last few weeks um now that i've been doing these shoots for uh modern classics yeah which i'm very excited about yeah it's a great magazine and i'm really pleased to be writing for them 
Um, but this is different to anything I've done for other magazines because it's actually finding cars and driving them yeah. and convincing the owners <laughs> to let you drive their cars, which is uh, new territory. <laughs> <laughs> How's, how are you tackling that? Is that going okay? It's, it's been pretty good, actually. Um, so the, um, there was the twin test we did a few weeks ago, which was the 300ZX and the Supra twin turbo. Yes. And the brief I was given was, we need to find great examples of these cars, find them, get them shot, write it up, talk to specialists, get all the information, and so on. It was a very long and complex brief, um, as it needed to be. And the way to find the cars was I went onto these specialist uh, forums, the 300ZX forum and the Supra forum, and said, hello. Can I, um, Hello. Can I <laughs> and then inevitably you get lots of people going, no, no, you can't. But then um, there were some very helpful people on both forums who were eager and enthusiastic. And then uh, when we narrowed it down and picked the correct cars for the feature and got the guys down to the shoot, they were so happy to be there. It was great. The guy yeah. with the suit came down to, um, where did we do it? Surrey or Hampshire or somewhere in the south. But he came from way up north and he'd come down the night before and stayed in a hotel. Oh, wow. Like, wow, thanks, that's real effort, because you've got kids. And he was like, yeah, to be honest, it's nice having a night to myself. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, they were, they were really excited to be on the shoot. They really enjoyed having their cars kind of appreciated and uh, kind of saved for, for posterity, trapped in amber for future generations, whatever. Yeah, and they didn't mind handing over the keys either, Brilliant. which was good. I guess the fact that they know it's all insured. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there is watching, that. So I'm not going to misbehave. But, uh, yeah, no, it's, um, it's a whole new dimension of journalism, which I'm very keen to exploit. Because I've done a lot of road testing and stuff before, but that's all been, um, it's all been cars borrowed from press fleets, direct from manufacturers, yeah. rather than being cars that are actually owned by enthusiasts and they've had them for years and cherished them and loved them. It's quite a different thing. So, yeah, it's good fun. Brilliant. So if we if we ran, wind the clock back a little bit to um, your first article, um, yeah, I I'm I don't want to say it was a VW Beetle, but I think that might have been at least one of the first. That was the first one that we did together. Yes. So what was your first? <laughs> what was your first article? Uh, well, and uh, I know you wrote the voicemail. Um, section for a little bit as well. So was that was that your kind of in toward into the uh, the magazine? It was, yeah. So the way it all happened was, um, uh, old school friend of mine, a guy called Sam. Uh, we've been best mates forever. I was his best man. He was my best man. What have you? Um, <laughs> a few years ago, uh, we were. I dragged him down to the Ace Cafe because there was a retro rides forum meet happening there. Oh, okay. Uh, I was still quite new to that forum and I didn't really know anyone, so I said to Sam, come along with me, let's have a few pints and yeah. look at some cars, and he doesn't care about cars, but he liked the idea of coming along and getting pissed, so uh, <laughs> we went to the Ace and we had a few drinks, and he bumped into someone he knew, because he, at the time, was working for a PR company, and one of their clients was Mazda, and... Um, at that time, Andy Basu was the editor of... Hang on. He had been the editor of Banzai. And so Sam had met Andy on a Mazda thing. And then Andy was working on Retro Cars magazine. And he and uh, Cy Jackson, who was then editor, they were both there at the Ace. And me and Sam drunkenly stumbled over to them. And Sam said, this is my mate Dan. He writes about cars. You should let him write in your magazine. <laughs> and that's when I started doing the voicemail column for Retro Cars. That was the first kind of thing I did in print, which was really very exciting. Because uh, it was a magazine that I'd been reading for years anyway. Yeah. And really enjoyed. So actually being in it was great. Um, I did the thing that 
all journalists say you should never do <laughs> and you get massively criticised for, which was to give it away for free. I didn't get paid for that column. Yeah. But my way of thinking was it's a foot in the door. Yeah. And it worked because after I'd done that for six or seven months, uh, I said to Sai, can I have a feature? Can you give me something to write? Um, and he actually gave me a really cool feature, actually, my first one. It was, um, you know, Nightmares Racing? Yep. Mark, Mark Holmes, um, yep. down in South End. He, at that time, had his purple Pro Street Mark One Escort. Yeah, yeah. And we went down to South End. Uh, Gary Hawkins was the photographer, and we went down to Southland Airport and did the shoot, and that was my first feature. That was a retro cars feature. Oh, fantastic. Um, although then it took a couple of months to get in print, so my first one that was in print was on um, what was it? a Supra, Mark One Supra. Cool. So were you at that shoot, or did you do that one? That, that was one which uh, generally happens now, is where I get sent a load of photos, and then they say, contact this guy, get the info, whatever. You find quite a lot these days, or I find that that's the way it works, that's the way around it is. It's not so much me pitching ideas to magazines yeah. at the moment. It's them coming to me and saying, we've had this car shot, talk to the owner, write it up. And that, uh, that kind of goes in, in hand in hand with your kind of writing process of, of getting the information via email and, and yeah, doing, doing it all remotely. Uh, so that's, that's such a selling point, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. Um, it used to be more weighted the other way, where it was uh, me predominantly pitching ideas to magazines, um, saying, I've seen this car at a show, and what have you. And that was maybe four or five, was it that long? Three or four years ago, maybe. Um, where every show I went to, I was putting notes under people's wipers yeah. saying, send me an email with some specs, let's get you in a magazine, whatever. Uh, but I don't so much do that anymore because there's no, um, well, there'd be too much work to do then. <laughs> 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 that, There's such a steady flow of features coming, but um, if if it's going to be me pitching something to a magazine, it's, it's going to be something really special now. I'm not just looking out for anything that might be suitable. It's If something really, really special catches my eye, yeah, then yeah. I've got to grab that and pitch it and get it in. Like that um, that Civic that we did for Banzai this yes. month. Yeah. Such a cool thing. I was at the, uh, the Goodwood Breakfast Club, and I wasn't expecting to find anything to write about there, because it was, what was it? I think it was a supercar day. And there's no outlets that I have for that sort of car. But, um, yeah, I saw the Civic and I thought, there's no way we can't not feature this car. It's just too good. So I got the guy's details and, well, you know the rest. Yeah, totally. He Again, another just thoroughly excited person to, to have his car, um, have the treatment sort of thing done on his car. And it's, it's, it's in print for everybody to see it. So it's really nice. And it's, it's nice when you go, um, and there's so many people who are kind of so humble about their cars as well, and you kind of rock up and they say, yeah, absolutely. And they say, oh, do you think it's good enough to go in a magazine? And I'm like, mate, it's it's phenomenal. It's like so clean and yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's always it's always rather nice. Um, taking a little bit of a uh, a dog leg, um, if you were to teach at school um, or a university or a college, uh, what what um, age groups would you pick and what would you teach? <laughs> wow, that's a big question. Um, I because th- I know you've got two two little children now uh, who yeah. are growing up. So what would you what would you like them to uh, learn at what age? <laughs> These are some <laughs> questions. I think if it was me doing the teaching, I don't think I'd want to do um, secondary school age because okay. they're so mean. <laughs> are so mean. So um, you skip you skip eleven to sixteen, okay? <laughs> yeah, 
either when they're very small and like sponges or when they're university age and they've chosen to be there. <laughs> the two extremes that you want. <laughs> I can't uh, agree with that. Uh, what would I want them to learn? Um, do you know what? Madeline has been at school for, well, she started in September and she loves every minute of it. She really? absorbs everything. And um, she doesn't always tell us what she's been up to. She'll come home at the end of the day completely exhausted because she's been at maximum operational capacity all day, just bouncing off the walls. And then you'll say, what did you do today? And she'll say, oh, I've forgotten. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was just so exciting, she doesn't want to talk about it. But then these little nuggets of information start to bleed through. And she'll just slip into conversation like, oh, I was learning about reptiles today. Oh, wow. uh, what can you tell about reptiles? And then she's just got this whole stream of facts. And, wow, you're listening to everything. We've got to be really careful about what we say now. <laughs> Fantastic. I think that's, that's, uh, I'm, I'm quite, um, quite opinionated on school, um, because of what I've kind of gone through. Um, but having, having somewhere where you can, uh, have interest being pulled out of the children, uh, rather than actually kind of flood them with information, actually get them interested in things, I think is, is hugely important. So it's always cool to have, uh, it must be really cool to have Madeline come back and say, oh yeah, I learned, learned about reptiles today. This, this was really cool. And, yeah. Yeah. It is. It's great. It's um, it's interesting to see her having this whole life outside of what we see, because when they're little and you're with them all the time, you are their whole frame of reference. Yeah. And then suddenly you've sent them out into this big place with all these other people their own age <laughs> and with these big people telling them stuff. And that's like hours and hours every day. We've got no idea really what she's up to. And then she comes back and doesn't really tell you. But then it all starts to make itself known. You'll start talking about something and she'll say, yeah, I know about that. I can tell you this. Wow, I didn't tell you that. <laughs> Must be incredibly proud. Oh, yeah. Yeah, every day. They're amazing little people. And is she, she's just had a birthday, is that right? Uh, yes, yes, she did. Yeah, she just turned five. Just five. How was, how was the birthday party? Because uh, we actually had to postpone this interview uh, because it was, it was <laughs> quite crazy last week. <laughs> there was an extravaganza. Yeah, well, her birthday was on the Friday, which obviously was a school day. But yeah. um, they had the they had a non-uniform day, which she was very excited about because it kind of felt like it was a special day for her. Um, but they were all dressing up for her, which was nice. And then we had a party on Saturday, which was uh, a few of her friends around in the house. Five-year-old girls, put them all together in a room. <laughs> like oh, the touch paper. <laughs> Um, yeah, we had an entertainer, which was good because then we didn't have to entertain ourselves. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty chaotic. And then we had a whole family thing on Sunday as well. So it was like three days of oh, wow. shouting. <laughs> um, yeah, so she's just about calmed down from that now. But she's very excited to be a big girl now. Fantastic. What did, what did she get? What did you get her? She's very into this TV show at the moment called Go Jetters, which okay. is a thing on uh, CBBS, which I thoroughly approve of because... Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, it's it's very entertaining to watch, but it's properly educational as well. It's about these uh, these four guys um, who fly around in a sort of spaceship thing, and their mentor is a unicorn. He's like a funky 1970s shaft character. <laughs> He's got funky effects, and there's lots of wah-wah guitar, and it's all very cool. He's got what, sorry? Um, lots of funky wah-wah and, you know... Big 70s beats, it's really, and like lots of bright, shiny rainbow colours. But um, in every episode, they go to an interesting historical site around the world. So you learn all about Stonehenge or uh, all about Lake Retber in Senegal or all these places that you haven't heard of, and, uh, or all these facts about Machu Picchu that you never knew. And it's all just getting sucked into her brain through this program she really likes, which is great. So she got all the, uh, the Go Jetters toys for her birthday. Oh, in fact, I've got one right here. See, little orange space. Oh, wow. And, uh, it's got a moustache. <laughs> okay, so a spaceship with a moustache. 
Always good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what what um, what books do you read, Madeline? Um, or do you make up stories? Absolutely loads. Well, I've got a new one for her over here, actually. What's this? Don't let the penguin drive the bus. That's a new book. That's, that's a very uh, sensible advice. It's, uh, yeah. Nice big words and not many of them. She's just starting to read. Um, oh, wow, cool. And we've, um, she's a bit old to have a baby monitor, but we've still got a monitor in her room just because we're fascinated to know what she's up to. And recently, um, she's got another one of these books and we heard her in the morning just get this book off the shelf and start reading it to herself. No way. So is that, is that reading or, or memory? Uh, I think genuinely reading it. Um, well, quite often she does do it all from memory, but she did seem to be actually doing it herself. So I've got her another one in the series to see if it was a fluke or she's going to take this one as well. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. But, That's really cool. Uh, at bedtimes we started actually doing books with chapters as well, rather than just, you know, short okay. one-kid books. So, yeah. So she Develop a chapter before bed. Yeah. So we're reading um, The Worst Witch, which is from the 1970s. Oh, wow. Who wrote, who wrote that? I oh, want to say Edith Blyton, but I don't know. Can't remember, don't know. I used to read it when I was little. Yeah. Um, someone got it for her for her birthday. But yeah, no, it's good. She uh, she takes it all in. She's really excited by it. She's kind of spellbound when she's listening to it as well. Because normally when you're talking to her, you just get relentless questions over and over and over. But when you're reading her a book, she just gets totally absorbed into it. It's, uh, it's nice to watch. That's fantastic. Cool. So um, how, how do you unwind? Because um, I've had a conversation with you um, a couple of weeks ago and you mentioned whiskey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is, does that make me sound like some kind of one-dimensional functioning alcoholic? <laughs> you need to unwind, Chris. Have whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> I might mention that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think that's a pretty uh, a pretty logical way of thinking. I mean, my days are pretty full, to be honest. So, yep. um, I get up, get the kids up. Um, what time do you get up? Uh, so I get up like six half six okay. so um, i have to be out of the house by half seven so i can go to work and then i'm in the office all day and then i come home and put the kids to bed and then i do a bit of writing and then we have dinner and then i might do a bit more writing and then bed and then it all starts all over again so, <laughs> it's not downtime, so. so what's the what's the first hour of your day look like so you get up at half past six um shower get the kids up leave the house basically um i don't live in the station so i've got quite a journey into work it's like a half hour walk and then Got to get the train, and then I've got to get the tube, and then, yeah. Um, the joy of Southwest Trains. Oh, as God, I, as, as I read on Twitter. Life. Absolutely terrible. As I read on Twitter every day. Yeah. It's, I mean, like, I, I feel sorry for people who have to use Southern Trains because they strike so much, but Southwest, in a way, are worse because they're just consistently awful all the time. <laughs> you don't get these spikes of crapness. It's just generally terrible. I don't I don't understand the logic of kicking people out. I, it, it makes no sense to me, but... Um, no, it's pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Um, yeah, so whis whiskey. Getting back to whiskey. What whiskey would you, What whiskey do you drink? <laughs> um, whatever's on offer at the time, but nothing crap. Um, <laughs> nothing I, crap, if, but whatever's on offer. If I had the choice, it would be a smoky single malt, like a Laphroaig or a Tarasca or something. But obviously, they're quite expensive. So, okay. uh, like a Red Label Johnny Walker or. I tell you what, let me have a look in the cupboard and see what we got. Let's see what we got. I, I'm not a whiskey drinker, so uh, I, to be honest, I'm not a drinker of anything really. So uh, any any recommendations always goes down well. What's he got? So what have we got at the moment? We've got the Glen Moray. Oh what? 
a single mall. That's and one that I can't pronounce. Or Kentishan? Where's that from? Let's see. Jamaica? An island in Scotland. An island in Scotland. So you've got Scottish whiskey and... And another one. Fuck. Basically, um... when single malt's on offer. <laughs> <laughs> so unwinding, kicking back, glass of whiskey. Do, do you stick you... And, and what, sorry? And TV. TV is the answer. TV. Bad, bad TV or any particular TV? Red Dwarf, obviously, but... Obviously, yeah, of course. Um, well, obviously, all the cool kids watch EastEnders because that's where it's at. <laughs> I'm way, uh, way you know, past cool. it's, it's a controversial thing because people are very polarised by it, but I really loved Grand Tour. I thought that was great. Really enjoyed that. Okay. Um, what do you make of the new Top Gear? The new Top Gear I really like. Uh, the Grand Tour I fast-forwarded an awful lot of. Really? Um yeah, it was. It, I couldn't quite put my finger on what it was. Um, the special that they did, where they drove the beach buggies, was brilliant. Mm. That that seemed very natural. I think it was. It, it's, it's kind of getting back to the natural thing again. Um, but it seemed. I, I think it either works for you or it doesn't. Um, yeah. For a lot of people, they were starting to get turned off by what Top Gear had become. Yes. Yeah. Totally. Um, because by necessity when you've been doing it for that many years it does become a bit of a pastiche of itself doesn't yeah. it? and I think a lot of people were tired of that so when you carry over most of those elements into a new show it's not really going to invigorate it it's more of the same yeah. but I really liked Top Gear in that era so the fact that the Grand Tour is pretty much the same with a bigger budget works for me because that's what I wanted to see I really liked Top Gear in that era I thought it was really good however I thought they were taking um, in, the, in the Grand Tour I thought they took uh, like little nuances from it and just overblown it Overblew it a little bit too much. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, but, uh, but no, it was it was watchable, and I did watch all of it. Um, like I say, a, 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 apart from fast forwarding the celebrity brain crash and all that stuff, um, and uh, the Americans, I, I didn't much <laughs> care for the American either. So mm. yeah, that all got fast forwarded. But the new Top Gear, I think, is very very good. I'm really surprised by it actually, because yes. the last series was such Appalling. a mess. There were just there were too many presenters, and they were trying yeah. too hard to make it the same as it was before, with the yeah. same cat phrases and stuff. And Chris Evans was unfortunate. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was going to be great with him in it because if, if he could have made it like TFI Friday, but yeah. with cars, exactly, and brilliant, exactly. He, he wasn't being himself; he was trying to be a sort of Clarkson character, and it just didn't. Yeah, well, I didn't no, think I completely, it was. completely agree with that. The new Top Gear, the the, the current season seems to be ro- rolling really, really well. Um, yeah. And I, I, as so a starting really point, as a starting point, I think it's fantastic, and it's and it's only going to get better. Um, yeah. And Matt LeBlanc and Chris Harris just uh, just making me laugh. They're both that great. little They're line of really good. I uh, well, you know, I was I was never a fan of Chris Harris before. No, I know you were, but yeah. having seen him on even in the last series, I thought actually this guy is great, and I've been missing out. Yeah, he tried a little bit too hard last season, I thought, but um, this season I thought was fantastic. I think it's always going to be a struggle, though, isn't it? When you've got a particular audience, like, because he's used to being a writer rather than a presenter. And then obviously he did all the YouTube stuff off his own bat, but that is a different audience. It's broadcasting to a much smaller amount of people, and it's people who've chosen to watch it. Whereas with Top Gear, there's that weight of expectation where people they have that historical precedent, they know what they want Top Gear to be, and you've got however many million people watching, and it must be stressful. Yeah. So you can imagine that he's probably not 
completely himself while he's doing it because there's just so much pressure. In yeah, doing definitely, it, so. definitely. But the um, yeah, the, the little banter that they have between them now is is looking pretty good. Uh, yeah, still, yeah, it's still, still, still slightly guided, but I, I think that will become uh, even better. Yeah. I mean, it necessarily has to be guided. I mean, all these programs have to have a script because yeah. it would be such a mess if they were just making up as they were going along. It's it's the ability to read that script without sounding like you just yeah reading yeah. something mechanically off an auto cue. Yeah, well, the TV show that um, that I was involved with um, a, a, a few months ago, which is coming out in May, um, that was very, very similar. This is what we want you to talk about, but kind of get there on your own um, own steam, sort of thing. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can I can see it. I did love the uh, the little <laughs> the little line when they were doing the freewheeling down the uh, down the mountain, and um, LeBlanc was like forty seconds faster, and he was looking at the times, and he goes, I'm, "I'm sorry, but it it looks like I just kicked your ass." <laughs> it was true. <laughs> yeah, it's it's getting good. I, I'm I'm quite quite excited for the rest of the season. So. Yeah. We'll see what uh, Grand Tour season two whether they uh, kind of stay stay with it or not. Yeah, I think that's coming out in November. So is it probably. November that early? Oh, nice, cool. Fab. So, if you were to uh, offer some advice for uh, journalists, uh, auto journalists, kind of coming up and wanting to wanting to write and obviously not steal any of your articles or features or anything, but uh, <laughs> uh, what what would be your kind of steps to get into it? You've got uh, so imagine. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, imagine, imagine, imagine you're Johnny Edge or something, and he wants to get, <laughs> wants to do some more writing. No, imagine that you're kind of someone out there who's got a blog uh, on, a, on a website and does does uh, little bits of writing about cars and, and wants to do a little bit more. Uh, what what would you recommend in terms of improving their writing style? And um, I think the the two most important things are a you've got to care about it. And B, you've got to prove it. So I, I've always been a car nerd to a very boring degree. Like when I was a kid, I memorized all of my top trumps. I knew all of my car books word for word. And I would obsess over the nuances between different models. And I could identify cars at nighttime by their taillights when I was a kid and all this kind of thing. <laughs> and this turned me into this quite boring grown-up where I had <laughs> loads and loads of cars because there, I had this huge mental list of cars that I needed to buy. And so when I was in my 20s, I was buying a new car every month because, like, oh, okay, well, I've had a 205 GTI. Now I need to get an Astra. And, you know, so I was so just, can like, you remember when we were in uh, Bratislava with the Honda Civic press launch and the trams in Slovakia were going by and you guys were picking out what the rear lights were from? <laughs> oh yeah. Um, right, the, the rear lights on that tram are from a 1980 Vauxhall Carlton or something. I can't remember what it was. Was yeah, it a Cavalier? Yeah, I think it was a Mark III Cavalier. They were from the, um, the saloon. Yeah, and slightly more square. I think so. Yeah, I can't remember. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that, that yeah, car when I, was in, um, when I was in Cuba for my honeymoon, they've got these little kind of tuk-tuk style things that are molded out <laughs> fiberglass, and they've all got um, three door. Um, Mark One Corsa tail lights on the back. Oh, yeah. I don't know why I remember this tedious detail. There that are was... more interesting things to see in Cuba. <laughs> <laughs> but that that was going to be one of my questions. Where does this car memory come from? Because uh, you you can pull up you can pull up feature magazine cars from ten years ago with with a unerring accuracy. Yeah, I don't know what that is. It's just I'm very very dull about cars. <laughs> <laughs> it's just my whole life I've. It's it's always been ticking away in the back of my mind just what is the next interesting car I could learn facts about. And when I was a kid, 
it's probably my dad's fault that all of this happened because he had a lot of interesting cars. And he also had this whole mindset that you would only take it to a mechanic if it was something you definitely couldn't fix yourself. Yep. Or if it was being MOT'd, whatever. So if something broke, then he'd be out there with his banners fixing it. And I'd be looking at it going, how the hell do you know how to do that? And I still have that sense when I see people working on cars. Like, I am not practical. I don't understand how you're doing this. But, uh, yeah, he had a lot of cool cars when I was a kid. Um, many of which I would love to own now. Um, so go through the list. Okay. There was uh, Saab 900 Turbo, X-Ridge, quite early. Nice. Uh, Alpha 33 Green Cloverleaf. There was uh, Mark 1 Cavalier 2000 GLS. Oh, wow. Roast Isles, Tobacco Brown, lovely. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, they were just absolutely loads. Um, the Austin Ambassador was a pretty special one because that had elephant cord seats. Oh, my word. Very plush. Austin <laughs> um, Ambassador, yeah. what year is that? Sorry? Austin Ambassador, what year is that? Uh, that, uh, that came after the Princess. So it, it basically was a Princess with a slightly different nose. <laughs> okay, yep, I've got you. <laughs> yeah, like a big wedge of cheese, basically. Yep. Yeah. Uh, that was arguably one of the less cool ones. But, uh, but one of the coolest things was, um, throughout my early teenage years, my dad built a kit car. And he'd never done anything like it before. He just fancied having a go at it to see if he could. So um, we went to visit all of these different kit car manufacturers to see what kits were available and what would work on what chassis and what have you. And he opted for a thing called a DMS Bullet, which was a replica Aston Martin V8 Vantage. Oh, wow. Uh, or Volant Vantage, rather. Um, which is based on the chassis of a Mark II or Mark III Capri. So he bought a completely rusted out, knackered Mark II 3-liter Capri um, and they cut the body off and they plonked this fiberglass thing on top and then he spent years in the garage just turning it into a thing that worked as a car and sometimes I'd be out there handing him spanners and trying to learn things quite often though if it was a long winter evening and he was out there with hands full of gearbox I'd you know, rather be inside playing on my Super Nintendo or whatever <laughs> um, but it just amazed me that at the end of all of these endeavours the garage door opened and he just drove out in this amazing sports car that he built by himself just blew my mind it uh, it had a sad end that car unfortunately but um the memories of it resonate still yeah he uh he gave me that car actually and i had to sell it which was quite sad oh no that's um yeah i've got, I've got a similar story after my granddad i i grew up around my granddad building a uh a replica 1935 chain drive Fraser Nash. Um, mm-hmm. It took him 15 years, and when, it, when, it, when I was 15, he rolled that out, similar kind of thing. He rolled it out to the garage and uh, got it MOT'd, and uh, and that was that was sold um, a few years ago. But uh, that's that's why I do my photography. I'm going to make so much money with my photography. I'm going to buy it back because I want that <laughs> car back. <laughs> it means a lot to me. That car does. It's cool. Wow. So, uh, well, at least you know that one still exists. I know for a fact that my dad's kit car does not exist anymore. That's that's yeah. That's that's slightly unfortunate. <laughs> I, I sold it to a guy who worked as a volunteer at Brooklands and so for its first few months in his tenure it was uh, it was giving kids rides around the banking and school holidays which was quite a nice life for the car I thought because when I had it it was just locked away in a barn in Wales where I couldn't reach it and it wasn't getting any use but then um, I saw some pictures of it online kind of torn to pieces in a scrapyard and that was a bit sad not good but you can't save them all can you no, so there's no, definitely a lot, not. A lot of cars that I wish I hadn't sold, and that is one of them. But 
what am I going to do? I, I can't keep 30 cars and leave them outside. That wouldn't work. So. Yeah, you haven't got space. What, um, what cars do you regret selling? Uh, my Mark III Capri. That was amazing. It was a 2.8. I bought that on eBay. It had been built by this company, who I don't think exists anymore, called SB Racing. They made it for a customer, and then he didn't pay his bill, so they just flogged it off cheap. And it had had a full uh, bare metal resto uh, respray. It had a nicely tuned engine, so it had about 180-odd horsepower. Um, very, very low, full-on South London, looked bright yellow um, five-spray revolution wheels. Everything on it was absolutely mint. It cost me 1,500 quid. But that today would be a 10 grand car. But I kept it for about a year and then sold it and replaced it with a Saxo VTS. <laughs> Why did I do that? <laughs> oh, and that was a crap car. <laughs> um, my, I had a 1974 BMW that I regret selling as well. It was a 2002 Touring. Yeah, that was a 2002, yeah. Uh, the previous owner had turned it into a road rally car, so it was basically just two seats and a roll cage and nothing else. Um, really snorty Alpina engine on big twin carbs and... Um, it had a Group N Impressor exhaust, very loud. That was a lot of fun. But then I sold that because I was moving to London, and I couldn't leave that part on the street in London because it would be there for two hours and someone would steal it. So, yeah, regret it, but don't regret it at the same time. I also, oh, one that I really do regret is um, I had a Mark III XR3i that was absolutely Concorde condition. I found it in this guy's heated carpeted garage. He had it for sale. Wow. And um, I owned it for a few months, and I thought, this is too good for me. I'm just going to wreck this completely original, beautiful car. Because I was living in Brixton at the time. Yeah. And you can't leave a car like that parked out on the street in South London. So I sold it, but that would be worth a lot of money now. Wow. Wow. So you, you mentioned you moved to London. Where did you move from? Where did you, where did you grow up? Uh, well, all over really. I was born in South End. Um, and then when I was very little, we lived in Hampshire for a few years until I was eight. And then all my childhood, I grew up in Kent, um, in Home Bay on the coast, which is lovely. Um, and then I moved to London for a bit and then moved out to Red Hill, where I lived with some friends. And that was the Escort era. <laughs> <laughs> the XR3i, I mean, there wasn't a, yeah. <laughs> um, and after that, yeah, I moved back into London and then lived in Wandsworth for 10 years and then now we live in Epsom. Cool. cool. So, yeah, all over the place, really, yeah. Round and about. And where did you go to university? Where was the, where was the university? Uh, Portsmouth, which uh, was all right. Upgraded Polytechnic. Yeah. No, it's a proper university. It's got university written on it. So. <laughs> I've not been, so I, ca I can't. I can't comment at all. I've, I haven't got a degree. I have not been to university. I uh, I opted out when I could uh, go and get a job, so I did. Uh, yeah, I I enjoyed it at the time. It's a really good way to rack up a load of debt doing silly things. Yeah, yeah. Which which I did. It was great. Spent my first student loan check lowering my mum's car. Oh wow! Did you? Um, yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's that's a sensible use of uh, <laughs> sensible use of the money. Clearly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what um, what cars did you uh, what cars did you grow up with? Then? What was the uh, the one that stuck out? Um, well, cars that my parents had. Yeah. Uh, well, there were all sorts. Um, I really liked the Mark V Cortina they had, very much like the one that you shot last week. Yeah. They had a 2.3 gear. Beautiful. Which, uh, yeah, that's got a lot of happy memories. 
Um, uh, like I said, the ambassador was good. There was the Cavalier, the 900, the 33. Uh, oh, what was really surprisingly good was the uh, my dad had a Scorpio, the Bug Eye Scorpio. Oh yeah, the ugly one that everyone hates. Yeah, because um, he decided to go to an auction and buy a car. And he didn't know what he wanted. So the first car that rolled across the block, he thought, well, I'll just get a bit of practice in. I'll throw in a little bid on this one just to kind of get my eye in. And then he accidentally bought it. Um, but then fell in love with it because it had everything in it. It full of toys. It was really cool. Yes, yeah, it was like aubergine purple, fully loaded. Uh, it wasn't a Cosworth, unfortunately. But, um, yeah, that took us down to the south of France and back a lot because uh, that's where we always used to go on holiday because my folks have got a house down there. Yeah. So um, there were lots and lots of long car journeys through France there and back throughout my childhood, and some were more comfortable than others. The Rover 216 Vitesse was not a comfortable car <laughs> to do a 14-hour journey in. But um, yes, there were lots, lots and lots of cars that, uh, that I wish I could own one day. In fact, uh, in the Vauxhall Heritage fleet, they've got a Cavalier that's almost identical to the one my parents used to have. Oh, really? I drove it a couple of years ago, and it was really surreal like genuinely strange that I'd forgotten all about this car and then as soon as I sat in it everything was so familiar the little eyeball vents and the dash and the shape of the center of the steering wheel everything was really familiar except I was sitting behind the wheel where I shouldn't have been <laughs> actually controlling the car it felt <laughs> naughty <laughs> felt naughty and do do the um, does do, do the uh, cars of your childhood influence the, the cars that you've got now so you've got uh... Um, the little Skoda VRS. Uh, VR? Yeah, the VRS. Yeah. VRS. Um, not so much, no. I, um, the VRS, oh, I love the VRS. It's such well, a good car. Too. You, must, you must like it. The only the only memory I've got of that is the boot coming down on my head as I was photographing it at, at <laughs> my escort. Well, yeah, this is a different one. That was my old black one, wasn't <laughs> yeah, it? That was yeah, one. so it was before no, you upgraded. is better because it's faster. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, no, I love it because it's the perfect family car because it's got a ridiculously big boot, you know, because you've been in one, yep. <laughs> climbing around in the back. Yep, um, I'm not sure. It's like a, it's a Golf GTI underneath. It's got a great chassis, handles really well, and it's so fast. I mean, I know 200 horsepower is nothing to show off about in this day and age because every car's got more than that, but it's still plenty, I think. Yep. Um, and the same with the Civic. That's 200 horsepower, but it's really frantic, urgent, exciting horsepower in the Civic. I just, I'm such a VTEC junkie, I love it. <laughs> How long have you had that now? I this whole list of cars that I wanted to own, and that was going to be the first one in a set of stepping stones. So I was going to have the Type R Civic, and I was going to keep that for a few years, and then upgrade to an M3, an E46 M3. Yep. The next stepping stone would be to get a 996, maybe a Carrera 4S or something by the time I'm 40. Yeah. But that whole plan's gone out of the window because I've just got so addicted to the VTEC now. <laughs> well, particularly last week when I was driving that Integra Type R. Um, and I was genuinely trying to work out how to shuffle things around so I could buy one. Yeah. Uh, but I can't. But that's fine because I've got the Civic, so I'll just keep <laughs> making that faster. Um, but oh, so it has, yeah. have the stepping stones kind of moved a little bit, or, or are you still going to... Have they just moved, or have they gone out the window? <sighs> I, uh, I don't know. Probably gone out the window, to be honest. Like, I, I'd still... I would like an M3, but I'd much rather just have a Type R Integra now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do love those so things. I'm an absolute uh, Japanese car um, nutcase anyway, as you know. So, yeah, the Integra's are fabulous little things. It just does everything brilliantly. Yeah. What, what I was really surprised about was with the Civic, I've, uh, the EP3, I've had that for about a year now. 
So I've got used to it, and I know what it's all about, but I wasn't expecting the VTEC and the Integra to be so urgent and so pronounced. It's just mental, <laughs> like, <laughs> genuinely insane, that car. And it's given me much more of an appreciation of what the Civic can do and what potential it has and how I can make it faster and make it behave more like an Integra. <laughs> so you're going to make a Civic Integra. What, um, what have you had done to the Civic? What, what have you done to it so far? Because it's uh, been quite extensive and it's constantly having little bits and bobs. Yeah, a little bit involved. So, um, first thing I did was um, the exhaust and the induction. So, it's, it's now got a catback uh, M2 exhaust and an ITG induction kit. Uh, I did the suspension. So, I didn't want to spend like a grand on coilovers because it was pointless because they handle really well as standard. So, it's still got the stock shocks, but with IBAC lowered springs, it's got um, camber bars on the front, adjustable camber arms on the back, and a tie bar thing. Uh, and it's got <laughs> what the Civic Nerds call a fast road setup I think they call it whereas it's, it's very nerdy amounts of um, camber and tow and what have you that you have around to just make it handle like some kind of laser guided missile which is great um, what else would I have got the ridiculous spoilers on it which just, I quite like I'm sure you get lots of stick for it but I quite like them they, they, I am fully aware that they are absolutely ridiculous <laughs> The reasoning behind it is that when I was a kid, I always used to go and watch the touring cars at Brands Hatch with my dad, and I always wanted a car with a touring car spoiler. Yep. And they make them for the Civic. It's based on the original VTCC design. I'm sure it makes no difference at all on the road, but I don't care because it looks like I want it to look. So yeah. You might get a bit more front end grip with the with the front spoiler, front splitter. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Depends <laughs> how quickly you go into the corners, I suppose. I, I'm treating it as largely an aesthetic modification. <laughs> um, but the next thing to do is... Um, well, you've recently, you've recently um, done the knob, haven't you? Sorry? You've recently polished your knob. <laughs> yes, yeah, I've got a short shift and a weighted gear knob, which gives, tightens up the shift a bit. But um, the thing about these cars is you can't get them remapped because their ECUs are just locked in. Um, but you can buy a thing called a Hondator and there are a couple of different ones. There's the K100 is the basic one, and the K-Pro if you're you know, running a supercharger and you want to tweak it for different circuits and change your cams every weekend and remap it all the time, blah, blah, blah. But I think I'm going to get, if I'm going to do that, I'll probably get the K100, the slightly more basic version. Because companies I've seen who fit these, they say if you put a K100 on it, you'll get an extra 15-ish horsepower on a stock engine, which sounds good. But the other thing is I've never had a car on a rolling road before, and I'm really interested to see what happens. Because it makes sense to see how your car's behaving, to know that it's in tip-top condition, or if it's not, what you can do to fix it. Because you could be driving around in a car that's 40 horsepower down, and you don't know, because yeah. you've got no frame of reference. So yeah, that would be interesting to see. That's probably the next step. We'll see. Cool. Um, oh, I tell you another really cool thing I did on it was um, I got an Apple CarPlay stereo fitted to it. So it's got a little USB that comes out of the dash, and you just plug your phone into it, and then the stereo becomes your phone. Oh wow! So um, it's got a little microphone attached to the top of the screen, so you can dictate text messages to it, or it will read your text to you, so you don't have to be looking at your phone, and you can actually like send messages while you're driving legally and safely and what have you. But oh, yeah, the good thing about it is, you can use Google Maps on your phone as your sat nav. Oh, brilliant. So you don't have to buy a sat-nav. How good is that? That's, that's really <laughs> sensible. I like that. Especially with the new laws coming in, because you can't do anything with your mobile phone in your car anymore. Yeah, exactly. So you just plug it into the thing and then wang it in the glove box, and then the stereo's doing it all by voice control, so you don't even have to look at it. How clever is that? And what's that called? Uh, it's a K100 
Kenwood something. But there are loads of different stereos that do it, and it's called Apple CarPlay. Apple CarPlay, okay. Yeah. Cool. I'll have a look for that for uh, my next car, because the uh, I've completely fallen out with my BMW. Yeah, um, why is that? What's wrong with it? Despite despite me thinking, oh, okay, I'm going to get a, a 530D Touring. Uh, it's going to be a car I'm going to keep for a while. It's uh, it's clearly the best um, estate car. Everybody's everybody said so. Um, picked it up. It's just dull. <laughs> it's literally just oh, dull. <laughs> yeah, it's just dull. Oh, okay. And it's it's um, it's aggravating uh, my Achilles a little bit. Um, oh, really? I don't know. I don't know whether the the accelerator pedal's too heavy or the driving position's a little bit off. But um, mm-hmm. my uh, my Achilles is getting uh, tighter. Um, or it seems to be getting tighter. I don't know whether I'm attributing it to uh, the BMW accurately or not, but um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's on its way out. <laughs> Shall we put it that way? Yeah. Um, yeah. So we'll, we'll get so, something. Uh, yeah, I like your idea about the Alpha. We'll get something. Yeah, slightly more stupid um, to replace it by. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you want to get a Legnum or something? Oh, mate, I'd love a, le- a Legnum or a Stager. Stager. Yeah, yeah. A Stager yeah. would be amazing, but uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Ultimately, I think I'd have a 19. 1970s Datsun or a Mitsubishi Galant and put a put a modern engine in it, but uh, that'll be a few years down the line, I think. Yeah, what what would the dream. where yeah where 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 would you be dreaming to? What does your what does your perfect two car garage being a I being a family man of uh, two kids? If I were to win the lottery tomorrow, I would buy. It'd have to be a 911 of some description. God, what is everybody's obsession with 911s? Please, okay, so. Talk through the nine eleven thing, because I there's, okay. there's, there's, it's just numbers to me. It's like nine nine six and nine four two and blur. <laughs> and I, I don't think about it is it, it means a different thing to different people because it's been around for so very long. Okay. So to some people, you say nine eleven and they think of the pure chrome bumper in early seventies. Yeah, the, the super lightweight kind of thing. Some people will immediately see an RS with a duck tail, or some people will be picturing the the 930 in the 80s, the turbo with the big whale tail. Right, right, yep. So some people it will be the new 911 that's in the showroom at the end of their road that they're coveting as they walk past every day, or what have you. So 911s, it's like a little cultural spider that reaches out into people's lives in different ways. And to me, I kind of want all of them. If <laughs> <laughs> so you want the singer. I, I love the belligerence of it, the way that they've just continued making this stupid car with <laughs> the engine in a completely stupid place. I hear that they've, all the uh, time. they've engineered their way around a yeah. massive stumbling block, not just to make it work, but to make it work really well. The fact that it looks brilliant and goes brilliant and is brilliant is, is kind of a bonus. Do, do you class it as a supercar? Uh, obviously uh, this, this this week's Top Gear had a big argument between the, the pair of them about whether it was a supercar or not or whether it's a yeah, sports well, car. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it a supercar. Supercar is not just about the performance so I totally get what he was saying about the Turbo S having supercar performance but then just having the bald figures on a page saying it does an order 60 in this, the top speed is this, it costs this much. That's not really what it's about. It's the specialness. So when with those two cars they had on that show, it was the Turbo S and they had the, um, it was the Huracan, wasn't it? Yeah, Huracan Spider. Spider yeah. If you see two of those in the street, if you see the 911 go past, you might have a second look. You might think, oh yeah, it's a 911. But if a Huracan goes past, you think, that guy's got things sorted out. There's a lot of visual drama. It's all angles and excess. Yeah. And it's a deliberately, belligerently, stupidly silly car. <laughs> it's not something that you would buy with your head. And that's what a supercar should be. 
Look at uh, a Koenigsegg or a Pagani, so wildly, ridiculously over-engineered. Everything's made with the super light carbon weave matched up perfectly so that it all goes in the same direction, and you've got the crazy hinges on the doors, and all of these things that don't need to exist. That's why the 911 isn't a supercar, because it's got because a lot of very sensible engineering in it. You can get it back seats. It's got all of the... Um, safety equipment and it's got all of that Volkswagen DNA in it. It's a brilliant, brilliant car, but it's not a supercar because it's not stupid enough. Like TVR sports cars <laughs> class as supercars, even the little things like the Tamoras and you know the smaller ones, yeah. they're still to me more of a supercar than a sports car because they're so ridiculous. Like you didn't get any safety equipment on those. It was just you in a very light car with a massive engine and 90% chance of spinning at the first corner you get to. <laughs> that was the, uh, the TBR approach to uh, airbags as well. Well, don't crash then. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's the kind of thing that just doesn't need to exist. Like a 911, you could justify. You could say, this can be a sensible daily driver. I can get the kids in the back. It will always start on cold mornings. You know, it's, it's, it can be rationalised. You cannot rationalise a supercar. It's that to... is the difference. It's a poster. And uh, what's your what's your poster supercar? Um, it's always changing, but being a kid of the eighties, there's nothing quite like an F40, isn't it? Knew you were going to say that. Knew you were going to say the F40. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. And uh, did did the video of Chris Harris drifting an F40 pull you around even a slightest bit to him, or, or have you even seen the video? Uh, yeah, that was that was before he was on TV, wasn't it? That just yeah. kind of made me, made me dislike him. You're driving that forty, I hate you. So, um, uh, diesel cars. Have you ever have you ever driven? Have you ever owned a diesel car? I have never owned a diesel car. I've got to bring to up. A diesel car. I've driven diesels and I've hated every single one. I think life is too short for diesels. It's just there's no fun. I, even if you've got a sensible car that you have to do lots of sensible miles in, there has to be a little spark of joy that stops you wanting to kill yourself. And <laughs> life is too short to drive a diesel. No one has ever laid on a deathbed and gone, oh, I'm glad I got good MPG in my 30s. But yeah, it costs more money to run a good car, but you only live once. Prioritise. <laughs> life is too short for diesel. So yeah, that's I've, I've taken that on board, which is another reason why the BMW is going and I'm getting a petrol alpha. Good, good so boy. The, the alpha is, is and you'll enjoy it every time it breaks. <laughs> it's, uh, no, it, it can't so break because I, I need, it I need think, to yeah, that's a pretty trip. car. It's a pretty ornament that has potential to be a car. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a very good mechanic. It will it will always work. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Yes, you're right. Electric cars. Let's 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 uh, look into the future. Very interested in electric cars. Um, ashamed to say, I've not driven one. I'm fascinated by them. I'm fascinated by them. I've heard so many great, great things about the i3 and the i8. Um, I think it's genuinely interesting that Renault and Nissan are actually getting some sales with the Zoe and the Leaf, um, because it wasn't that long ago that the whole thing was stymied by the idea of um, you having to rent the batteries from the manufacturer, which obviously puts people off because you want to own your car, not just 80% of your car. Um, I think there's still a way to go, obviously, 
we need to get the whole infrastructure for charging and what have you. You hear so many stories about people who are just having a bad time with electric cars because you pull up to the services and all the chargers are broken or, or there aren't enough of them. Um, but no, I mean, it's, it's a future idea. I mean, obviously there's no such thing as a completely clean car yet because the energy has to come from somewhere. But it makes a lot of sense. It really does. The one one of the most impressive cars that I um, shot and uh, was lucky lucky enough to go out in as well uh, this year was the uh, the Tesla Model S. Um, just yeah, what Tesla does, it's 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 a game changer because the reason there's so much on the agenda now is that up until Tesla existed, electric cars were all so worthy, and they were all in that same box as the Prius and. Yeah. Um, not so much the insight, because that was kind of quirky and interesting, but it was all that very kind of worthy, oh, I'm buying this because I'm better than you and I'm more considerate kind of thing. And people didn't give a shit about that. But then Tesla came out and they said, yeah, it's an environmental decision, but look how fast they are. Look how fast we can fucking go. And they really ramped up the excitement in the marketing as well, putting ludicrous mode on it or whatever it's called. It's just so clever. It's so it's much fun. fun. I, I, you can take a big, sensible luxury saloon and make it something that can dust any muscle car you care to name you care to name or the um what's it called the uh, the model x yep. take a take an suv make it ridiculously fast and put gold wing doors on it for christ's sake why not yeah <laughs> and suddenly people are going actually yeah electric cars are quite cool aren't they yeah no so, I, we, we've talked about elon musk on this podcast before um we're big fans of ash, ash and myself are big fans of uh, just the way he kind of approaches things and uh, one of the one of the first things he kind of looks at is Okay, so why is this why is this not possible at the moment, and what do we have to do to make it um, make it viable? Um, and obviously, pulling pulling the price down and making making the range better and everything like that was was right up there. But putting putting ludicrous mode in there and, and having the volume go up to eleven and just just little <laughs> little nods where you know that they've got a sense of humour is just genius. But yeah, that was a fabulous car, fabulous car. Uh, I'm really excited to see. I'm excited to see what happens when they take all the sensibleness out of it and make a supercar because that would just be really yeah. nice. Um, yeah, there's a lot of companies out there making electric supercars that... The Rimac. Think, uh, yeah, Rimac in particular, but uh, there's quite a few others as well. And not just with uh, with electric cars, there's um, there's the nano flow cell um, technology, there's... Uh, I can't think off the top of my head, but there are, there's half a dozen different completely diverse... Like unique ways of thinking that um, that people haven't really considered before. Like in the past, it was either your alternatives to fossil fuels were electric or hydrogen, and no one could make hydrogen work. BMW had a good go at it in the nineties; they yeah. couldn't make it workable. Hydrogen is too expensive. Now hydrogen is being experimented with more, and you can buy hydrogen cars again. But there are loads of different technologies that you wouldn't necessarily have thought of that people are actually making work. That if they do work, there's going to be so much diversity that people in another generation's time aren't even going to really consider petrol to be an option yep. because there'll be so much diversity it will just seem <laughs> like a dinosaur <laughs> <laughs> like the crushed up dinosaur that, that, it is. that it is yes and where, where do you think where do you think hybrid cars like the i8 fit in with them do you think that do you think the i8 is the kind of the doorway into the electric side of things or do you think electric is just going to, do you think tesla's just going to come down and sledgehammer the the um, industry? I don't know. Um, I think people at the moment are still very confused about hybrids, um, largely because 
lots of them work in different ways. So you can have ones where uh, the electric motor is just a booster for the the petrol motor that's driving the wheels, or you can have one where the engine is just a generator for the batteries, or you can plug it in, or you yeah. can not plug it in. Yeah, I think there's too much complexity in there at the moment, which could be a thing that's pushing people towards electric cars, because it just makes sense. It's an appliance. And I think probably one of the main reasons why Tesla are doing so well, in spite of all the massive quality control issues that I've heard about, which is a separate issue, um, is that they're not a car manufacturer that's tried to make eco cars. They're a tech company that's diversified into the automotive sector. So they were already succeeding technologically with a broad portfolio of products, or rather the people who were working on it were in various other companies and various other disciplines and what have you. So when Tesla was formed, it was formed as this whole mold-breaking thing rather than a manufacturer going, oh, we're going to try something else because we've always done this, let's try and make an electric car. Because that, that lacks a certain credibility, and I think that's probably why they're not really taking up as much as they could. But, um, sorry, I've just waffled so much I forgot the original <laughs> question was. Whether hybrid cars are going to be the, uh, the doorway oh, yeah, yeah. in or whether... Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a way of, it's, it could be a way of weaning people off petrol. It could be... Um, I think BMW have done a brilliant job with the i8 to not put people off by the fact that it's got a three-cylinder mini-engine in it. Yeah, yeah. Because that could have been something that killed the thing off straight away. But in fact, they've made this incredible spaceship of a car that's getting really good reviews. And people kind of don't care about the drivetrain. They just care that it's efficient. Yeah, it's more about what, what it does and how it drives than, uh, than the drivetrain. So the, yeah, they managed to hide that. That's, that's actually a car that I really want to do a photo shoot on. I haven't done a photo shoot on one of those yet. Um, and also the McLaren P1, which is beside yeah, yeah. the point. <laughs> it's a ridiculous car, so good. <laughs> need to find one, need to find one. Uh, there will be a magazine somewhere that wants uh, a shoot on a McLaren P1 at some point. <laughs> <laughs> I keep reaching out to owners. Um, I asked Jensen Button because he's got one and he, he didn't get back to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's like that, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I, I, I want to be very respectful of your time, um, so we'll just do a couple more just to wrap up. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've uh, you've heard this question before, um, but um, if you were to put a Red Dwarf quote on a billboard, uh, you could put that billboard anywhere you liked, what quote would you pick from Red Dwarf, kind of tying it all back together again, and where would you put the billboard? <laughs> it's a hard one to do off the cuff. Um, oh, do you know I've got no idea? I can't think. I've just got <laughs> I've got a vision of that little tiny Arnold Rimmer dancing across. You know, you remember that song? The Munchkin song. Arnold, Arnold Rimmer. It doesn't really work on a billboard, does it? I guess you could have that on the big digital billboard. Down the West Cromwell Road outside my office, <laughs> no explanation of why it's there, and then I could just enjoy that and just watch people get really confused. I love that. There's a there's a there's a guy on um, that I follow uh, who's who's one of the reasons why I do this podcast actually. Uh, a guy called Tim Ferriss, uh, and he says quite quite often that he'll put a, a photo up on Instagram just with with no hashtag, no explanation or anything, just to see what kind of response it gets. Um, mm. So yeah, that would be. That would be uh, an interesting way of, uh, of doing a billboard. Just to... You know what I do? I put a billboard outside the local branch of Whole Foods with the uh, the triple fried egg chilli chutney sandwich. <laughs> yes, That's please. I I said, have you ever had one of those? Have you ever made one? No. 
No, you should. I, I, I should. Your option when people eat them. <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> are you uh, are you coming to Wheels Day? Uh, I think so, probably. Yeah, because uh, I would imagine we'll do our uh, bacon donut dogs again at some point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'd be dangerous. They were funny. So that that was um, that was an April Fool uh, from was it Krispy Kreme? Mm-hmm. I think it was a Krispy Kreme April Fool uh, that. Um, a lot of my friends went. Oh, that's that sounds doable. Let's do it. So we did it. At, uh, it's, uh, it's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's a donut, a donut, bacon, a hot dog, and uh, raspberry jam. Uh, yeah, perfect, fab. Oh, well, um, very guilty after everything. <laughs> yes, it was very very nice. Well, thank you very much for that, Dan. Um, just quickly, just to wrap up, uh, where can people uh, find you if they want to reach out and uh, poke you or send you a send you a message? Oh, okay, I'm all over the place. Um, at Denial Vibes on Twitter, um, at dbizzle with an underscore on Instagram, uh, co and all your other usual channels. <laughs> and um, we did have a question, um, which I would be very, very wrong if I didn't ask you. Uh, are there any other anagrams of your name? Uh, <laughs> yes, um, be a devil, sin. <laughs> Is that the only other one you've got? That's the only other one. I've so you've got denial vibes and bees. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, cool. Uh, thank you very much, mate. Um, if there's anything else that you would like to ask uh, the listeners to do uh, as parting comment, then uh, feel free to ask. Uh, yeah, send cash. Send cash. <laughs> send cash. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we'll uh, we'll leave the address in the uh, in the show notes uh, where you can send, <laughs> send the cash to. <laughs> I'll keep control of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll trust you on that. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you very much for that, mate. That's uh, absolutely spot on. And uh, we've got a couple of shoots coming up in the uh, the next few weeks. So, uh, yeah, good I stuff. Will, and we'll catch up with you then. Cheers. Excellent. All right, cheers. I'm going to go and put the kettle on. Nice one. Cheers. Thanks, mate. Bye. All right. Nice one, buddy.